Welcome to Talk Purpose and Truth, shifting you into higher consciousness, a show that elevates, uplifts, and encourages listeners to grow, heal, awaken, and evolve. Eden and Kim include bold topics, interviews with inspiring guests, experts, and celebrities, intuitive readings, channeled messages, mental health awareness, and hot topics to expand your awareness. Tune in for unprecedented truth, authenticity, on-purpose discussions, and magical moments. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Talk Purpose and Truth. It's Kim and Eden. Hi, Eden. Hi, Kim. What's going on today? <laughs> um, well, it's pouring rain here for a Is change. It? Oh. For a change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never, remember that new edition song? It never rains in Southern California. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's true. It's kind of true, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So we all panic when it rains. Like, I don't want to go anywhere. (laughs) Does your does your dog? um, He doesn't like like it. So he will he go to the bathroom in the house? No. He yes. This morning he did. How did you know? (laughs) I don't know because now I have since I have a dog now same kind of yeah. Oh, he just went like in front of us. Like he was just like f you here. This is what I'm gonna do this morning, and we're like. Oh, great. (laughs) So that is funny you bring that up. Um, Anyways, all right. Well, we're going to jump in. Um, We we like to kind of rotate and have some pop culture, music, rock and roll, lighthearted episodes. And then we switch off and do some deep mental health consciousness episodes. So we thought about it and we're like, you know who was so great on our show in the past who's been on and, and still gets a lot of listens is Chris Epting. And so he has so much he's done that I feel like we probably only have talked about 25% of what he's done. So we thought, let's have him on and ask him more questions about the books he's written and the shows yeah. he's done and the talks he's had and all that. So I, I want to introduce Chris um, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about him as well. So Chris Epting is the author of 40, I think probably 40 plus travel history books, including James Dean died here, roadside baseball, hello, it's me dispatches from a pop culture junkie and many others. He's an award-winning travel writer and has contributed articles for publications such as the LA times Westways and travel or Westways and travel and leisure magazine, among many other publications. He is a veteran music journalist and recently co-wrote Def Leppard's Phil Collins memoir, Adrenalized, which I've had the pleasure of hanging out with Phil Collins and interviewing him, love him, and the John Oates memoir, Change of Seasons. He also co-created and co-hosts the Reels Channel docu-series, It Happened Here. Um, And we thought it would be great to bring him on and talk about pop culture because we love it and places where celebrities have died or have had experiences things like that and then before i introduce him and and welcome him i want to tell you chris that you to me you are such an example of a of a really down-to-earth and balanced positive person Mm -hmm. and i feel like what that does is just through your posts and through what you do and through what you do in the community in orange county and huntington beach and around here, um, you show people that they could live a life that's inspiring and a life of their dreams and still be down to earth and positive and a family man. Um, and I think that most people aspire to be like that. So we need more people to live by example that way. So welcome, oh, Chris. That's a very nice uh, introduction I, and overly generous, but thank you. So I'm here as a pop culture guy, not a deep mental health. Episode, right? <laughs> I just want to establish... Not yeah, this yeah. time. Yeah. What are, you what probably go either way, but yeah, what are your deepest, darkest fears? <laughs> well, well, thank no. you for having me back. It's very thoughtful of you. Yes, great. Thank you for being here. Yeah. So what's it like to be you with all that she just spoke about? <laughs> are you living? Know. Are you feeling like you're living your best life? Are you doing what moves your soul? I will tell you this. The when I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer. And when I was a young kid, like fourth, third, fourth grade, and the fact that if you can go into a bookstore and see some books that you wrote, everything is gravy after that for me. Because it's like you did that. You got that done. You know, that mm-hmm. was like the hurdle. That's what I wanted to do. And so anything that happens afterwards is 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 interesting and fun for me. And 
um, you know, you can never really let up. You're, you're a freelance writer. You've always got to be looking for things to do, you know, to keep you busy. And um, thankfully, I've had some amazing opportunities to uh, to write stories, write books with people I never imagined. I mean, I got like right here. When I grew up, I was a big Doobie Brothers fan. Mm, still am. Yeah. Like this book yeah. came out. It was just, but I didn't have, it was coincidence that it's here. But like this uh-huh. came out this year. And I look at this. Wow. And it's like when you, you know, I adored these guys growing up. So yeah. when I look at my name with them on the bottom, I was like, how did how does that happen? I saw them a couple of weeks ago then in San Diego. And during one of the breaks in the set, Pat Simmons there uh-huh. uh, started talking about what the Doobies had been doing since they were last in San Diego. And he says, well, we wrote a book. You know, that was one of the things. And I was sitting in about the 12th row or so. And I, I had no idea he was going to do this. But he started talking about me in the book and then introduced uh-huh. me to this thing, right? And then, then the 15-year-old in me is mm-hmm. flashing back to like Madison Square Garden. We've seen the Doobie Brothers in 1978 or whatever. And now you have this happening. And in my head, I'm thinking, how, how does this work? How does this get to here? You know, wow. what, 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 how does this circle complete like this? You know, yeah. really, that was a very surreal thing for me. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't get take, I, that doesn't happen to me a lot where I feel that sense of, of, of real drama and, and gravity, but it was something about them being in the middle of a show. Mm-hmm. And he talked kind of like at length about how we did it. And it was, um, it was really something for me. That That's when it hit me that, you know, n- that none of this is, is, can be taken for granted and you got to appreciate yeah. these moments and opportunities, you know, yeah. Yeah. and keep looking for other stories to tell because even the way that happened with them was very serendipitous. I didn't go looking for that. It happened very organically. I had written an article about Pat's wife, who's a motorcycle enthusiast. He was there when I met her at the end of this road race and when we had dinner, it was a very, you know, natural way that it happened. Mm-hmm. I'm lucky like that. Sometimes things just, um, Drop in my lap. I had a situation, but it's during COVID. It's maybe like a year and a half ago, where I got a call from a publisher who said, "Look, we've got a guy. His name is Tyrus. I knew who Tyrus was. Tyrus is a pro, not former. He's a pro, current pro wrestler. Uh, six eight, four hundred pounds. He's also a Fox News guy who's on there, you know. But I was like him on Fox because he's kind of like not a Fox. He's his own guy. He, mm-hmm. he voted for Obama twice. He really kind of owns his own space." And, 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 and I like him on Fox a lot. I think he's very smart, very quick. Anyway, they said he had a co-writer who, who bailed, who just didn't do the job, left with the money, disappeared. We're, we, it's got to get done starting from scratch. This book's got to come out in a year. We've got a contract and all that. He's interviewing people. Do you want to talk to him? It was during COVID. And I thought, what the hell? You know, I'm, I'm home like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so he and I had a conversation and he called me back and said, look, um, I spoke to some people, but I'd like, love you to do this. And I thought, what the hell, you know, um, takes, we only had about six or seven months, not enough time to write a book like that. But I said, look, if you're, if you're committed, we will do this. We're going to be very, I'm in a very diligent schedule. And and here's the math on it. This many words a week. It's like, this is how you get it done. Mm. He said, let's do it. And, and in the middle of the process, right at the beginning, actually, not even the middle, he, um, he says, you know, I don't, I want this book to be about my wrestling career and Fox News. And I said, look, if I were you, I wouldn't, I had learned about his childhood at that point, which was incredibly graphic and very dysfunctional and really uh, upsetting. And I said, if I were you, that's what I would lead with. I would unpack that story of your life as, as a man, not necessarily as a wrestler. We can get to some of that stuff. I said, but let's really let people feel who you are, what kind of makes you you. And he didn't want to do that. And um, mm-hmm. we almost you know, agreed to just say, maybe we're not right for each other, you know? Mm. But then he called me a couple of nights later, uh, in the middle of the night. And he says, um, boss, which is what he ended up, his nickname for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you've written books. I've never written books. He goes, I'm going to trust you on this. If you think mm. that's what we should do, we'll do it. And I said, okay. I said, I, I promise it'll be okay. You know? And, uh, and so then he, then he opened up, this is a guy who was Snoop Dogg wow. bodyguard for 10 years great stories but again how he got to be that guy to me was really the the story right and so we're going through it and going through it and it's hard for him i mean it's like therapy he's talking about things he's never spoken about and um and we finished the book it's about two weeks before it comes out and he calls me and he says uh how do we pull the plug on this and i said Uh (laughs) i i i don't want it to come out and i said well all right a couple of things one 
it's made. The book is in warehouses. It's out in two weeks. The book exists. Yeah. They don't they don't print it the day it comes out. Your book has been shipped. It's it's in boxes in bookstores. So they ain't coming back. I said the second part is this is totally normal. I've had more than one um, co-author contact me at the last minute and say remorse. They yeah. freak out. Yeah. What have I done? You know, because yeah. they're thinking about, wow, everyone's it hits that everyone's going to see this like every the, the world. And I said, so that's normal. I said, so we're going to get through that. And I said, and he goes, and I don't think I don't think this book's going to sell. And I said, I, I'm not a fortune teller. I don't I'm not a gambler. I don't believe in predicting things like that. I said, but honestly, my gut on this, I said, what you've revealed is is very there's a lot of truth to it. Um there's a lot of relatability and there's so much honesty and, and um, just vulnerability. I, I think it's going to connect. Plus you're on Fox a lot. You've got a good audience. If you t- speak about this in the right way, let people know what they're getting. We have a shot, mm-hmm. you know, so book comes out. I mean, it debuts at number one on Amazon and it sits there for weeks. I mean, this, it was crazy. Amazon mm-hmm. ran out of the book in, I think four days and they had a pretty good first run. So there's this mad scramble to print more, it hits the New York Times bestseller list in, in a week. It's there for a while. The book becomes, I mean, a really a great success of the spring. I mean, people in publishing were like, it didn't have a big PR. It really had no PR campaign. It had wow. him on Fox a couple of times, but it was it became this weird word of mouth where all of a sudden there were not hundreds, but automatically thousands of Amazon reviews. Four and five star reviews all saying, wow, I never knew this about this guy. This guy made me cry. He made me laugh. People appreciated that he had opened up, you know, and mm-hmm. himself. And it was just really, I mean, it was this amazing moment. I mean, to watch this, um, this juggernaut, this book, what it did and what it continues to do. I mean, this book, it just, it's found all of these different audiences, you know. So that was mm-hmm. a really fun um, experience this year and Tyrus and I have become like brothers and are working on something else now so you, again you, you just don't know I mean if a publisher yeah. call me to say we have this crash and burn can you help this guy I miss that writing that storytelling opportunity you know and I you know like I always tell people I work with I learn as much about writing and storytelling working with them as I hope they do working with me I think I get more out of it I mean I Really, uh, I always come away different from those books, whether it's Tyrus or, or the Doobie Brothers or Leif Garrett or whomever. Um, for better or worse, you come away changed because you've mm-hmm. experienced this thing with somebody. Um, you've watched them, in some cases, just rip their insides out, getting close to the, their own truth. And, uh, you know, but you change in a good way. You grow and it helps set you up for whatever the next writing project is going to be. Yeah. It sounds like you, you know, it, it sounds like you have a mixture of the compound effect of, of basically like you've done so many interesting things in all different aspects of life. And what happens is like you've put in all that time. So all of a sudden things are attracting and coming to you, like, you know, and mixed with just letting go and allowing, you know, things to manifest. I think part of it, I think part of it is good. Look, it's like anything. If you do well on behalf of somebody there'll be word of mouth, you know, that Mm -hmm. happens. And, uh, and that's nice when that happens, but yeah, then, then you get a sense that the universe maybe has a couple plans for you. Mm -hmm. I always feel like it's incumbent upon me to take those experiences and share them in a way that delivers an experience for other people. It's why I started teaching memoir workshops because I thought, my God, I'm now, I've worked with all these people and I've cycled through all these experiences and watched all these growth patterns and had, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of conversations that have helped me figure out how to get people to let go and write, you know, honestly. So those workshops have become, I do those all the time now. And it's like, they're amazing. They fill up in the blink of an eye. It's people that are there to write. Um, and I love watching people find their voice. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, I have one tonight as we're going to sit down in Newport that I do at the Newport Public Library. And uh it's the second week and it's about 25 people. And I know I'm going to walk in there tonight and they're all going to be ready. They're going to, they were mm-hmm. in the asylum from last week. They're going to be ready to get up and read it. They're going to be hungry for more. So everything I'm learning, I'm simply cycling back into those workshops because I mean, why waste the energy? It's, it's too good. You know, it's too yeah. valuable to just let me sit around, you know, <laughs> rethinking what I was able to do with some of these people. I love it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So much passion for your purpose you know it's well, really- I, think, 
But if any, everyone does something that is worth passing along. I I don't care what it is. I mean, you know, everyone's got some craft or some skill that if they think about it, 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 you can do something with it and hand it Mm -hmm. off. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, I I don't think we talked about it last time, but um, I got to have this mentorship with this really well-known fiction writer named John Cheever, who was a neighbor of ours. Uh, up in Westchester County. And when I had said I wanted to be a writer as a kid, my dad said, well, you know, you've got to have a closet. you got to have a plan. Like, even fourth uh-huh. grade, right? <laughs> yeah. Wasn't enough that you just wanted to be a writer. It's like you had to have like a path to it. And he said, well, you've, you've got to write John Cheever a note and go put it in his mailbox and ask uh-huh. him advice. So I did. And he wrote back and then he called uh-huh. and which blew my parents' minds because they were huge John Cheever fans. And to me, uh-huh. it was like, well, that's what happens. You write somebody and they, you know, they, they write you back. I didn't get that it was that big a deal, but that mentorship went on, you know, until I was in college, till he died. And that's also wow. stuff that I still, um, in part, because I started thinking about that a few years ago and it's like, God, I got to be with that guy a lot. And yeah. he told me a lot. So why am I not putting that out? So every memoir workshop, you know, I channel some John Cheever in the room, specific mm-hmm. lesson based attitudes about writing, you know? So, mm-hmm. You're just shedding these these um, experiences that you've got for people. Then hopefully they can take what they want, and maybe then they take it somewhere. You know, right? Yeah. It just sort of keeps evolving and changing a bit as it goes on. But but it's something. You know, it still exists. What a good yeah. feel- feeling! I I had that um, the other day. I know this is not about me, but I've been mentoring a couple people um, in the area of you know, being a medium and because that's what I do. And both of them for about a year. And the first one, she called me yesterday and told me that she did her first reading for someone Mm. and, and it just came full circle in that moment. And it felt so gratifying that, you know, I could do that for someone and I'm all I'm doing is just telling them what I know. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You don't expect anything back on it. You know, you just kind of do it because it feels right. I was yeah. at a, a function a couple of months ago and I was waylaid. A woman came over and she said, um, you know, uh, do you remember me? And I, she seemed kind of familiar. And she goes, well, you, my son was on your, like was a little league coach. My son, Joey was on your team. I'm like, oh my, Joey, the kids I remember, right? Joey, you know, and uh, she goes, you know something? She goes, you're not going to believe this, but he called the other day and talked about you. Now, when he was on the team, there were some family issues there. And as a coach, I w- you gravitate toward those. Any kid going through that, you know, you've got to kind of yeah, take that into account and maybe... Um, I don't even know what you, you do a little something extra. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't even know what yeah. it is, but you at least create a cushion so that if something rough's going on, you make it a better experience. Yeah. And this kid was, was that kid. And he was, he was a great kid as well. And she said, um, he called and he told me about what you did for him, what that meant. To him. I started crying yeah. uh-huh. at the school. I'm like, you're kidding me. So I, she gave me his number and I called and he's just started his own business and stuff. And it's like those those things to me, when you do that, like your experience of having it, I'm getting choked up now. <laughs> um, but that's when you really, yeah, when, when the circle completes like that, I mean, that's that's the best feeling in the world. When you really know somebody is. actually yeah. thought about it, acted on it and, mm-hmm. and uh, remembers it fondly. I mean, come on, that's nothing like that's that. That's amazing. I love it. So life-changing. You know, it, it makes me think of, and this wasn't even related to like what I do for a living, but my friend who lost her husband, um, Sylvia, was telling me the other day, because there's kind of that belief that you lose someone like that, you're supposed to just be a mess for years. And, you know, although she has her moments, she said, you know, she has a lot of days where she feels happy and harmonious and joyful. And she goes, Kim, you were, you were one of the ones that made me realize I could be that. And I go, why? And she goes, a long time ago, you pulled me aside and said, how are you doing? Because she, she was a caregiver for him for like 14 years. With, he had ALS. And so I would check on her. You know, how are you? And she's like, you know, I'm pretty good. And I said, well, of course you're good because your nature, your nature is being happy. And she was like. So she told me that that goes in her head like every day. She's like, it's mm. okay to be happy because my nature is that I'm happy. Mm. And 
And even though that's a simple thing, she would, she's like, I wouldn't have really thought about it like that. And your words stuck with me. So my, you know, my reason for bringing that up with all your stories is for those listening, sometimes we have a thought about someone and we don't bother saying it, you know, or a compliment or words of inspiration. And so try to act on those things, you know, even if it's someone in line at the supermarket, like say what you're thinking, because never know. I agree. I I totally agree with you. We miss opportunities. And, you know, I think when you talk about affecting people, and obviously for those of us that are parents, that's your first line of influence. Those are the ones that you really sweat over the most. You want to impart everything to them, whether they want it or not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like when they've had enough and had their fill, you almost, um, you look outside of that sometimes because, you know, you, you realize that the kids need their own space. You give them what you got, and then they've got to go make up their own stuff. You can't. And I would err on the side of overwhelming. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's like an, I'm one of them. You know, I'm one of those really. I just you, when you adore your kids, it's like you just want to always be on top of everything. But yeah. you gotta. Yeah, you know, I'm learning. <laughs> I haven't learned, but I'm learning uh, slowly to. And my kids are 29 and 26. They're not. They're, they're adults, and they're do, They're thriving. And they're doing amazingly well, and all that. But I still, I just love hearing about their takes on the world and their experiences, and then maybe you know throwing mine on top of it. It's just, it's just something about the enjoying watching your kids grow. That you, I don't think you mm-hmm. ever give up on wanting to help shape, uh, you know, their attitude, or at least not, not shape their attitude, but but at least let them know um, mistakes you made or, or things mm-hmm. that uh, help them with down the line. You know, things to totally. Yeah. um, But yeah, it's like you say, Kim, you you really have to, I think at this stage of the game, world's a lot more serious now. It feels that way than it was a few years ago. So yeah, any opportunity you've got to, um, you know, I always, I'm always conscious of like calling out something good, like, you know, it's Mm -hmm. a restaurant or whatever. Right. But whenever you say, Hey, what's your name? When somebody thinks it's going to be the opposite of that. And you you see a look on their face, like, Oh my, like, well, What's this person going to do? And you say, uh-huh. you know, I want to go to your manager and say, you're like amazing. You know what I mean? like they, whatever they're doing, they, they totally. make you happy because you're making this place better. You know, I've always tried. Yeah, to me, I look for those things rather than, you know, my soup is cold. It's like, totally. you know, I don't I've never gotten that. I, I wasn't raised around that. It was always about looking for a positive thing to call out. The other things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just life. Nothing's perfect. Mm-hmm. Sometimes things um, yeah. Other ways, or someone's having a bad day, or whatever. But you can't. Um, you know the people that you know the opposite that like ride everything. Yeah. Always looking. You know they're called Karens today, but that that <laughs> that thing has existed for a long time. You know, of people that are always looking for what's wrong. What's and wrong? To yeah. Go to the next level. To <laughs> oh es- yeah. Es- let's escalate everything. You know, to yeah. some degree, and it's like, have you never made a mistake? Have you never? you know, taking your eye off the ball. I mean, come on, there's different ways to, to accomplish um, a lesson like that rather than ratting someone out to someone's manager. Yeah. I feel bad for women named Karen now. <laughs> oh, God. It's, isn't it crazy that Karen's become as pejorative? I, I do too. I mean, it's like, you know, there are certain people that just get brushed by history like that and their name is now forever tainted, <laughs> you know, forever and or yeah. at least for a number of years. And it's such a, a weird uh, cultural thing that happens. I, I had a neighbor at a Halloween block party a couple weeks ago. She was dressed as a Karen, big sign that said, can I see your manager? She had the hairdo, the whole bit. And it's like, it's funny. It was funny because I think we all secretly, you know, know those people and probably don't think highly of those people. You know, it is a yeah. kind of funny archetype, but they've always existed. You know, it's not like this, the, the, COVID or anything created. Maybe maybe it accentuated certain parts of it, but there've always been people that, you know, take things to that level and escalate every little thing. And I mean, yeah. And yeah. now there's a, a name. Life. Now there's a name for them. I know. Yeah, I guess. I guess. But I do feel badly for the, re- the very real Karens, some of whom I know. I'm sure are very there's nice. Some yeah. nice friends. But anyway. Um, all right. Well, so you were talking, Chris, about um Little League and coaching Little League and you also have books on baseball, and I noticed that, um, you know, it's been almost two years since we have lost baseball legend Tommy Lasorda, and you were actually a museum curator for an exhibit of Tommy Lasorda 
what are some of the items there and any sort of memories or stories that you have? Well, there's a lot. It's in the Fullerton Museum through Christmas time. In fact, I'm doing, I don't know what, this won't be ready yet, but I'm doing a book event there soon. Um, it all came about because I, uh, for a number of years before he died, had been um, approached by Tommy Lasorda's daughter, Laura, mm-hmm. about spending time with Tommy to, to, she didn't know if it was a book. She just said, I want somebody who I trust as kind of a storyteller and, and a gatherer to make sense of the last few years of his life. So I'm kidding me. So I started going over to the house. They lived in Fullerton. Very modest house. I'd lived in for 60 some odd years. Same house. Never moved. Wow. Which was a story in itself. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I got very close with became like part of the family, you know, Aww. until he died. And wow. we had been planning a museum exhibit pre-COVID with Tommy and his wife. They've both since passed. But the, the exhibit opened uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's really nice. There's all kinds of artifacts. It's, it's part of a touring um baseball hall of fame exhibit that's also there as well so it's really if you like baseball wow i'm taking my dad yeah i was thinking of my dad too no that's a good father's day uh thing to do yeah but father's day but sooner because when does it end yeah it ends at christmas time yeah we won't quite but um but what might you know i and i'm continuing to work on the uh lasorda story not as a book, but as a, as a docu-series. Laura and I mm. put our heads together and came up with this idea to look at it as a TV project, you know, because I had accumulated so many materials. I mean, hundreds of hours of interviews and video and home movie, everything, you know. So we've got access to this uh, family treasure trove uh, of stuff. So that's what we're going to do. We're actually going to, we're in the process of that now, of presenting oh, it. Oh, cool. Ah. Um, and, and, and again, Tommy Lasorda was... Uh, an incredible guy. I mean, again, he transcended baseball in a lot of ways. It wasn't just about baseball. He was a world figure. He was somebody mm-hmm. who just epitomized passion, enthusiasm, hard work, uh, love of God, country, baseball, everything, you know, mm-hmm. faith, God, everything. And and he, he just, um, you know, is a big, I'm a big baseball fan. And to sit at a table with him each week, I got you like, you know, you know, I'm not impressed. I've been with a lot of people and written and all these sorts of things. You you don't, celebrity doesn't impress you. This wasn't about that, but I would, I would sitting at the table have to remind myself, this is Tom, this, this kind of nice (laughs) little guy. This is Tommy Lasorda. You know, this Mm -hmm. is that guy that you watch for the last 30, 40 years, you know, as a baseball fan and all those different situations. This is him. This is, he's right here. You know, you can, (laughs) And that was that was kind of weird for a while. Um, we, what would happen is we would I'd get very comfortable at the house, and I would nothing phased me. But then we'd go to a ball game together, mm-hmm. and when you go to a game, then it's like when you're in that bubble uh-huh. and everything, the attention comes at you. Then you it reminds you that this is not just some guy. This is somebody that people um, spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, and projecting yeah. about that and. You know, he's just was such a part of the fabric of everybody's memories, um, baseball or otherwise. So, um, you know, it was uh, it was an experience. It really was. The the exhibit is nice, um, but I think the story we're going to tell soon on television will be even nicer because it's going to have mm-hmm. a lot of layers and a lot of different things that people haven't seen yet. Are you people allowed to realize. share? There was, was one story <laughs> I learned through the process yeah. that was really incredible when I was. The first day I went to the house, this would have been, I think, like 2008, 17 or 18. And uh, there was this old phone in the kitchen wall. I mean, old, like, uh, not a rotary, but like an old, like, orange plastic push button. Like, it's 1970s <laughs> phone. And yeah. um, I said to to um, Tommy's wife, I said, Joe, like, what? Why do you have that phone there? It should she goes, oh, well, we'll never take that phone down. It has too many memories. I said, well, tell me about it. Like, what is it about the phone? That... And she says, well, when dad, which is what she called Tommy, when dad would come home after particularly like a rough loss, he would be uh, very agitated. You couldn't really talk to him, but he would lie in bed knowing, waiting for that phone to ring sometime around two or three in the morning, like late. And he'd always jump up and go answer it. He'd wait for that call and I'd hear him on the phone. He'd be arguing with the other guys. But then the argument she would, would sort of graduate into like, they'd be laughing and then hang up. And before going, we'd be back in bed. And I said, 
okay, who was calling? Mm-hmm. She said, what well, was Frank Sinatra? Oh. She said, they'd become such good friends. And wow. Frank, Frank would have like an attitude about what he should have done as a manager and would call and argue <laughs> with him. And and just this, this I, I adore Frank Sinatra. So just knowing like you're in a house and that's the phone. Yeah. And this is the, you know what I mean? All of a sudden you're kind of once removed. Yeah. And then I learned something else that blew, absolutely blew my mind. When Tommy first was becoming the manager in 1977, I guess, Sinatra was thrilled because it was an Italian-American, you know, becoming, I think it might have been, the, I think Tommy may have been the first Italian-American uh, manager. I'm not sure about that, but he, he was one of the first, if not the. So Lasorda uh, is, this is thrilling news for Sinatra. So Frank says to him, look, I'm when you start, First game out, I'm going to come. I do something I've never done. I'm going to sing the national anthem at the Dodger game. Mm-hmm. And Tommy says, and he showed up. It was a rain. He sh- and he did it. So they became good friends after that. That first season, Sinatra was doing a residency um, in Vegas, and it might have been I don't know, maybe Steve wins up. Anyway, he said, Tommy, I want to fly you and Joe out on my plane. I want to introduce you to my audience one night at a show. It's off season. He says, I want to, uh, I want people to get a sense of you, my audience. Tommy, Tommy's like, of course, Frank Sinatra, Doris Sinatra, <laughs> Italian, right? So they're going to, it's a Saturday, I believe it's Saturday, but wherever the day is, the day before Tommy gets a call from a local guy, I think it was a hardware store owner in Fullerton, who says, Tommy, um, I have a bit of an emergency. My business is killing me. If you could do an in-store tomorrow, it would really help. Dr- I could really use your help. Lasorda says, yeah, it was Sinatra sending his plane. All right. He calls Sinatra and says, Tom, uh, Frank, Joe and I are going to fly separately. I got to help this guy out. He's a local. He needs me. We'll be at the show, but we'll get ourselves there. Well, that's the night that Sinatra's plane leaving from Palm Springs crashed with Sinatra's mother on board. If you didn't know that, like, that oh. was the flight, you know? So you think about that. Had well, they been on that plane, you, you know what I mean? Like just, this is before his career as a manager even really started. Did so, his mom die? Sinatra's mother died in that crash. Yeah. Oh my Whoa. gosh. Yeah. And, uh, Whoa. So, you know, Lasorda's life has all these fate destiny moments where things yeah. just change like instantly. Yeah. And, and that's one of them. So I think when we get to unpacking the full story, it's going to be really interesting for people whether you like baseball or not it's really yeah. not going to be about baseball per se i mean it's baseball but the the next level of it is really just about the incongruency of this blue collar steel town you know rough kid becoming like the king of hollywood you know yeah and how that happens and what he did for people and and his philanthropy and his motivation and his uh all of the uh things he taught people so i'm i'm very excited about that is this going to be a, sorry, is this going to be a documentary? Uh, it'll be, it's structured now as a docu-series. So okay. if you imagine like an Apple TV or Netflix thing for three or four mm-hmm. Okay. That's cool. a current structure. And he, it's interesting he chose to live in Fullerton, like so far from. Well, Dodger. when he moved to Fullerton, yeah, he wasn't, you know, working, uh, you know, he was a scout. So he could really be anywhere. Mm-hmm. They loved the community. They never left the community. Lived mm-hmm. in the same house for 60 years. Wow, that's cool. Wow, you just made it fascinating. Like someone who's not a fan probably would want to watch it after. Well, you're okay. I'll tell you, you're <laughs> yeah. the one. Honestly, baseball fans are what they call. Um, I hate the term, but it's accurate. Low hanging fruit. It's like baseball fans will watch it, but you're to me, you're the audience. It should appeal yeah. to somebody that doesn't care about baseball. Yeah, it's really not about baseball. It's about life, and it's about. This, this 65 year marriage of his, and it's about, um, you know, coming to grips um, w- with certain things in his personal life. I mean, it really is, it's about life beyond. It's, and it's good to hear this uh, just from my perspective, because I, my dad, when I was growing up, he worked with the Dodgers and oh. he, he had some run-ins with Tommy that were negative, very negative. <laughs> um, so that's all I know of Tommy. So to hear that there's a good side that's, you know, loving Look, Tommy, and- you know, Tommy could be an aggressive, abrasive. Again, it's all yeah. part of the passion play. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, you got to take the rough with the smooth. You can't have that level of passion, that temperature running hot 
and not have some moments where you you break a few eggs. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's all about that big omelet. You're going to break some <laughs> eggs. That's just the way life is. And yeah. I think thankfully, I mean, look, I in putting his story together when he was around, I talked to lots of people from players to celebrities to, to um, fans. And the guy that struck me, one of the guys that struck me the most is the guy who locks up the gate at Dodger Stadium every night. Like he can't leave till the last guy's out. And he's, he's been there for years. And he told me, he says, you know, when Tommy was still managing, he said he was the last one to leave. He said, because he would sit there and answer fan mail. Like wow. in the morning, he'd write people back. He would type people back. That was important because I couldn't leave. Because Tommy knew I couldn't leave. So what Tommy would do, he would go in the player's catering room. He goes, and there wasn't one night he didn't come out to the gate with a box of food for my family to say, you know, I kept you here. Let me feed your family. He goes, this, that was our routine. Tommy would never forget to, you know, and if you knew it was his kid's birthday, there'd be a cake. He was very in tune with people and what, what their needs were and what, you know, just things like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I used to be with him at a game, we had to get somewhere else in the stadium. You'd have to build in a half hour just to go one section over because he would stop anybody who recognized him, which was everybody, <laughs> um, he would stop. And as we'd say, Tommy, we got to, ah, nah, nah, this kid, got, and he would have that moment. Kids, and, and, and there wasn't a kid he spoke to or signed an autograph for that didn't hear the words, you love your parents, you love your country, you promise me you're going to love your, you promise. He used every little moment as a little teaching, motivational, no matter how old the kid was. He would mm-hmm. always put that out there, you know, to at the, at the exhibit in Fullerton, there's a letter on the wall. It's a, it's a densely single space type letter from, I think 1966. So before, way before he's a manager, he's a coach in Utah and he had written a kid wrote him and uh, he wrote this kid, this letter, right? And Tommy's former, a guy who worked with him at that time was at the exhibit at the night of the opening. And I said, like, this letter, did he have, like, a secretary? Like, I'm mean, look, I know, I remember typewriters. And this is, like, old school, you know. He goes, no, Tommy traveled with a typewriter. And every night he would type out his game notes and he would type responses to fans. So mm-hmm. it's like, he didn't just start doing that. This is, this is just his being. It was all about connection, reaction, responding. It really was, I mean, again, the more I learn about him today, the more impressed I am by his capacity for uh, his memory, his knowledge, his levels of enthusiasm. I mean, he really, um, everything was always at pitch level. It was, everything was always up here. Everything Hmm. he did, you know, was always uh, a little over the top. And I think that's what made him bigger than life. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go to the museum and it's not too far. It's not too far from me, so. <laughs> yeah, no, it's something worth ma- making a trip. Yeah. Um. So you have another, you have a, a pop culture book um, called Hello. Hello, it's me. Hello, it's me, where you talk about the pop culture fads. Yeah. Um, what are some of those, the, the ones that are the most memorable for you um, over well, the past me, 50 years? That's a lot. Well, I mean, in the 70s, which is my sort of, Think I think our many of our sweet spots are like adolescent coming of age. You know, the first time we experience things, the first beer, a first date, whatever it is. That period of time we're, we're very dialed into. So I mean, in the seventies for me, what were the, I mean, the trends were? You know, it was uh, well, pet rocks, puka shell necklaces, mood rings, all those things that were kind of. I don't know. They were provocative in a way. Mood rings in particular to me were amazing because we all kind of. I don't know. There was something simple and interesting about those, um, you know, uh, certain clothing styles from back then, earth shoes, all those things that happened mm-hmm. in the 70s were really you could experiment with anything. You know, there was, nothing was off limits. Mm-hmm. And, and I liked that. I liked the openness of the era. I liked the innocence of the era. I think we've shut down a lot of that today, which is unfortunate. Um, and I just... Uh, you know, I liked, I loved the Partridge family, the Brady Bunch, all of those kinds of trends as an early kid to me were totally magical. Um, so I, I, to me, the 70s will always be a very fond decade. It was also, you know, there was a lot of, you know, you had things like the Vietnam War still going on. You had Watergate, you had Patty Hearst, 
you had all these other things going on, these kind of darker aspects, mm-hmm. uh, Son of Sam, you know, uh, yeah. that were that were strange and, and uncomfortable, but that also made the, the decade, I think, interesting as well. Um, great moments in sports and the music, I think, undeniably yeah. holds up in ways that normal music doesn't. I think more than any other decade, mm-hmm. music from the 70s still resonates uh, as much as anything does on the same level. So I, you know, and I don't, I won't live in the past. I don't believe in that, but I do think it's fun to go back and re-celebrate things that, um, you know, that were special to you growing up. I like writing about those things. And I like thinking about those things. Yeah. And I think what's kind of cool is now it seems like, like all the different eras, we can bring back elements and wear them or use them or appreciate. like my kids my kids are only 10 and 16 and like my 16 year old you would think she's a kid from the 60s and 70s by the way she dresses and what my she's daughter's the same in. way i know it's it's amazing yeah. yeah you would never even know so um it is it's kind of cool they get to pull from all those different areas you know and we still have mood rings today yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just um, had one on our trip yeah we did yeah. So, so again, I love, um, I don't want to live in the past, but I do like revisiting that time period and uh, just thinking about what it did for me. And uh, when I wrote the book with Leif Garrett, that was a kind of a fun experience because, you know, talk about living through the seventies. He, he was a pop culture icon. Mm-hmm. So that was an interesting chance to, you know, his perspective was, was unique, certainly unlike anybody's except for probably Sean and David Cassidy. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and that was a good trip back as well to relive that with him it was not easy, um, but it was still uh, it was a, I'm very proud of that book. How did that book do? Did well. It did well. I good. mean, there's an audience, you know, that that still follows late. But I think a lot of I think people from the 70s liked it. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> Even if yeah. you're not, I mean, look, I wasn't like Garrett fan. I was a, I was a Sex Pistols fan at that time, but. <laughs> Rolling Stones fan, but I appreciated. I was curious about how a Leif Garrett happened. Like, what what's the process whereby someone's plucked and anointed and becomes mm-hmm. like a heartthrob like that? You know what I mean? Like it, so different than than now because it starts with TikTok or something <laughs> on social media. Totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Leif's thing was weird because he had been a very good child actor, very reliable. I say good, reliable. He was he was serious. He was focused. And subsequently, what happened was he um, meant to say subsequently, he was on a show called Three for the Road in about 1975 or so, which bombed. And then um, the rec- the uh, TV execs are like, wait a minute, we're getting bags of fan mail for this kid in the show that, that really died. And a record guy said, ah, you know what? Um, let's make him a singer. Let's just, he's got an audience. He's people huh. reacting to him. And that was really the birth. It was the same guy that had developed Sean Cassidy's career. And he's like, you uh-huh. know what? Sean's got another year or two left. And then we got to rev up the next one. Because what was happening was there were these very complicated relationships, actually pretty simple relationships. Now that I think about it between the teen magazines, right? And the record labels where it's like, we're going to cross promote the hell out of each other. Mm. Magazines will promote the records, the records will promote the magazines. And so they were just helping each other out, pushing. And it wasn't about the music, certainly. Um, it was about the image and, and Leif being, you know, a good looking blonde surfer type. And that became the new 1970s pop icon archetype, you know, so. Uh, and all that comes with it, good and bad. So that's what the book goes into. And uh, I'm really proud of that book. That's and, awesome. Yeah. And then you, the, you wrote a book about James Dean. Um, kind of it, about him. I mean, is the book called James Dean Died Here? Oh, James Dean Died Here. That's not about him? Well, it's it's about him in, in a certain respect. It's, it's really about discovering places along the road where something happened. Now, the spot where James Dean died up uh, off of 40, Highway 46 between Bakersfield and uh, Paso Robles, to me is a very important spot. I mean, um, you know, he dies in 1955. He's got one movie out. People think he had this huge career. He wasn't that well-known. East Whoa. of Eden was the only movie had been released at that point. What really huh. seals the deal though, is that Rebel Without a Cause is released less than a week after he's killed. So oh. here's this anti-hero in this movie that releases all this repressed energy from the youth of America 
Oh, and by the way, the guy was killed in a fiery, uh, you know, sports car wreck five days before. So it made this, he was forever preserved as that guy in the red jacket with the t-shirt on, Mm -hmm. all that. And that to me was a very, um, you know, it was like an epiphany of pop culture. We had this kind of first pop culture icon created in the blink of an eye. So I wrote a book that focused on a lot of sites. Related. I, I took James Dean's last day and basically step it out to every spot that he touched. And then some other places as well. But I opened it up to include, you know, um, hundreds of other places around the country where something happened. But you might not know it unless I told you about it. So mm-hmm. it might have been where um, where an album cover was shot, where Bonnie and Clyde got tracked down. Where, I mean, you name it from American culture, mm-hmm. where Marilyn's Marilyn Monroe's dress billows up in the seven-year itch, that subway grading. I went and found that grading. So, I mean, it became Um, places like that. That really became my stock and trade as a travel writer was locating those kinds of places. Oh, cool. First of all, I did not know that my... (laughs) My impression of James Dean is that he did a bunch of movies, but he, you're saying he's he did two movies. Well, he did three. three. He, did, he three. did three. East of Eden was out already. Okay. Rebel came out, and then he had already shot Giant. That came out a year later. Mm-hmm. That was but that was away. after he passed away. Oh, okay. wow! Did, I wouldn't. Yeah, did not know it's that. Crazy how he blew up and still. Yeah. Still is this big icon. Yeah. Well, look at Marilyn. Like, you know, Marilyn was only right. 36 when she died, and. She didn't she didn't get old, you know, so we still have that. We, we only know her as that young, yeah. right. young woman at that point, you know, I mean, 36 at that point was considered approaching over the hill, like middle age <laughs> in the early 60s, believe it or not. not but, um, um, but she still yeah, looked amazing at the end. And, you know, that's what we remember. Your other book is Marilyn Monroe died here, D-Y-E-D. And you talk about other people like, you know, that where spots are which is so fascinating but um it talks about where her hair was dyed from brunette to blonde which is actually like a huge thing because that's what made her more famous yeah it's a coffee shop today and you walk in there and i said to one of the baristas there it's like do you realize like where you're standing may have been where norma jean baker became marilyn monroe Hmm. tell somebody that that's in the space today they never look at the space the same way again it's like sacred Ground. yeah where is it it's on hollywood boulevard by on the corner of hollywood and wilcox uh-huh. and um okay. yeah you know that's like that title Marilyn died d-y-e-d that was an attempt to be clever because the publisher wanted a sequel to james dean died here mm-hmm. and there's a third sequel in that series and i thought well elvis is like the next yeah basically the you know, the pop culture triad at that point, it's Marilyn, James Dean, and Elvis Presley, right? So, mm-hmm. but how do you connect the title to died and died? And he died on his toilet at Graceland. So that's not mm-hmm. really an option, right? Mm-hmm. But what I did learn was that Elvis used to play foot touch football at a little park in Beverly Hills called Denev Park. On Sundays, he would go out there with his band and play other musicians. He loved touch football. So I thought, okay, that's what we're going to do. So we went out and we shot the park and this re- redesigned the sign to say, Elvis Presley passed here. Passed the football. And, uh, that was the way we got the third one. <laughs> it's a stretch, but it, it sort of worked at the time. Yeah, it did work. <laughs> well, all of that's so fascinating. Um, you know, we're talking about these huge icons who died, um, which is a very sad topic, but you're kind of making it fun to to learn about. Right. You're putting a twist on it. What well, about what? Go, go ahead. ahead. I want to know also about the um, in the book or which book is it? The one. Um, I think it's that same one with the ruby slippers. Madonna's, yeah, Madonna's bra. bra brain. Yes. That book was an attempt. to. I had covered all hundreds, thousands of places that I decided to look at the artifacts related to those places. Yeah, You know, the museums, the oddball collections. I mean, Einstein's brain does exist in a Princeton lab on, you know, <laughs> test tube slides, you know. Uh, Madonna's bra is in, a, is in a museum. The ruby slippers, the four pair, you can see one of the pair. One is stolen, one's at the Smithsonian, one Liza Minnelli owns. I mean, all those artifacts I thought were fun to track down and wherever possible, let people know they can, in many cases, go see these things, you know. Yeah. And um yeah, those are fun. Those for me, those books are a great way to celebrate American culture and remind people of 
just what a, a crazy ride it's been in 220 some odd years in this country and all that we've given the world and all the world's given us and uh, just how we, you know, how in a free society like we've got here, it allows for things like rock and roll to be created and hamburgers and cheeseburgers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. automobile. All the things that we take for granted in many ways came from here. Mm. Yeah. Immigrants, you know, people coming here from other places, obviously. So I, that's a very important thing for me to remind people um, that you should celebrate your country. I know it seems corny, but um, on Election Day. On election day, as we're talking. Yeah, I, I think yeah. more than ever. As we're recording. What came so. from yeah. Well, this has been really, really enjoyable, Chris. And we always love having you on. And, um, you know, knowing you for many years, I feel privileged to say that you're a friend and we know Absolutely. you. So thank you for being on the show. Can you tell people how do we find your books and you and communicate with you? Well, thank you, first of all, for your kind words right back at both of you. And Kim, it's been lovely knowing you all these years. We mm-hmm. go, I was thinking way back that yeah. article, that was a long, probably like 12 years ago, maybe. Yeah, I think more because I when I was in a girl group, you interviewed. Yeah, the vegans. I think it was like 2006 or something like that. So Amazing. <laughs> well, I, I have a website. It's very simple. ChrisEpting.com. That's my author's site. I'm on Facebook. If you look up... Um, Chris Epting or Christian Epting. I have two of the accounts. Uh, but yeah, my website's a good place to see what's going on and books and TV and things I'm working on. So pretty easy. And Amazon, again, if people want to buy books or anything, Amazon, I can pop my name in there and a whole bunch of things will pop up. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Thank and you, ladies. I really appreciate it. Scott, producer, producer Scott, thank you for your help. <laughs> but uh, Eden and Kim, I really appreciate the invite. It was nice hanging yes, out. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Thank Thanks. you for being here. Check out his books. And then for those listening, um, check out my life coach certification program at lessons from confidence forward slash certification. And thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening to talk purpose and truth podcast. Find out more at talk purpose and truth.com. And follow us at Talk Purpose Truth on Instagram and Facebook.